This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. We want to get to our virus update, which we do every day. And we've got a great guest uh, to talk about what's going on. Uh, Tonics Pharmaceuticals, it's among several drug companies working on a COVID-19 vaccine. So let's get into it with Dr. Seth Lederin. He's chairman, president, CEO, and founder of the New York-based specialty pharmaceutical company, Tonics. He joins us on the phone in Massachusetts. Dr. Lederman, uh, Lederman, excuse me, it's nice to have you here with us. Um, I want to get into, and we want to get into what you guys are doing, but I've got to ask you about the latest news involving the virus. And we've all been talking about the World Health Organization coming out and talking about asymptomatic transmission of the virus and saying uh, it's very rare. And I know a top uh, WHO official has now come come back out and kind of downplayed her comment. So I don't know. How do you make sense of this? Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me on the show. And thank you for covering the COVID-19 story sure. so effectively. It's important that uh, you know, knowledge is power and everyone is in this together. Uh, thanks for asking about the WHO recommendations. I would say generally that people should err on the side of caution. It's, it's hard to know um, what's safe and what's not safe, but people making individual decisions should be cautious. I think that I find some of the information compelling that being outside is better than inside with people. I think that uh, staying six feet apart, wearing a mask, holding hands are all very important. So this new thought about asymptomatic um, transmission is something that people can put into an equation, but I wouldn't use that to uh, engage in any behaviors that don't follow the basic tenets. So as we think about a vaccine, uh, doctor, I mean, it, it is the thing everyone's looking forward to in, in so many ways. You are, as Carol said, right in the thick of this. Think of this. Help us understand what's realistic, what you are seeing, and, and how this development, which feels different to those of us who don't normally pay so much attention to how vaccines are uh, created, how it is or isn't different uh, from what you normally see. Well, first of all, I think that there's a remarkable effort going on all over the world, many companies, and it's really exciting to see how governments, nonprofits, companies have come together with the common goal of doing something about this. I agree with the general belief that we really can't get back to work and back to school in the same way that we now look back on it's called normal hmm. until there's a vaccine. So a vaccine is very important. And one of the exciting aspects of this is that so many different technologies are being tested. I think it's realistic that there will be a vaccine either late this year or early next year. But I'm not sure that that would be the vaccine that will ultimately win market acceptance and the confidence 
of doctors and patients. So there's an element of the tortoise and the hare here where there are some companies that are very fast out of the gate. They have exciting technology, but there are other companies like ours that are going more slowly and have different technologies. And I think that COVID-19 will be with us for a long time. So it will be possible to figure out which vaccines are best in a public health sense. Explain the science. As you say, there's different technologies for the virus. So explain that, because you're right. There is this huge race going on. The government is involved, too. What are the different technologies we're talking about, you know, and how that affects the, you know, efficacy of an ultimate uh, vaccine? I think the simplest way to to divide the different vaccine technologies that are out there um, is to think about the two main components of the immune system, and that is either antibodies or T-cells. And I think that vaccines are designed to stimulate either antibody responses or T-cell responses. Antibody responses are shorter-lived and tend to stop an infection from happening, and T-cell responses are longer-lived but tend to eliminate an infection after it's happened and also clear the bloodstream and the body of the virus. Now, those are the extremes. Just about every vaccine will have elements of both, but I think that dividing them up into whether something is more antibody or more T-cell focused is a good way to do to divide the many technologies being thrown at this. Do we need both or do we need the T-cells? Which to me sounds like a bigger deal, just quickly. And then we'll come back we and talk both. a little bit more. Yeah, I we think need we both. need both. And, um, uh, but but uh, there, there are flavors within both. But for example, it's probably true that an antibody test is a good sign that someone has recovered from the illness and has some level of immunity. But Antibodies without T-cells is probably not a solution. Let's get back to our guest, um, continuing to talk about what's going on uh, with the virus and, of course, uh, the search for a vaccine. Dr. Seth Letterman is still with us, Chairman, President, CEO, and Founder of Tonics Pharmaceuticals. He's on the phone in Massachusetts. So, you know, when you kind of take into account, um, Dr. Letterman, the, the reopenings that we're seeing, but we're continuing to be vigilant, wearing masks, and so on and so forth. Do you feel like things are progressing like they should be and in a safe way? I'm optimistic but, but cautious. The Most of the United States still has very low levels of infection and exposure. So while some areas like New York City um, uh, is maybe prepared to reopen, it seems like the rest of the country has to really pay attention to the guidelines of of interacting and behaving with appropriate caution. And so as you look at that, uh, and also you look at everything that's been going on with folks going into um, public spaces, and you think ahead to kind of the broader sentiment out there of, of where we are around the virus. We talked about the WHO. We talked about, um, you know, the reopening element. How does that all factor into what we need, to, how we need to be acting sort of in the meantime? And, and you said earlier in the conversation, you know, that, that we're not really going to get back to anything resembling normal till till there is a vaccine. But 
we can't live in this sort of binary world anymore. And so I, so I do wonder, um, you know, when you think about things like, I'm just going to be very parochial here, like sports in the fall, you know, whether it's youth or professional or college, when you think about people going to conferences, all those different things, is that all just delayed until there's a vaccine? Well, I think that if, regardless of the scenario, if people are following the guidelines of staying six feet apart, wear a mask, washing hands regularly, I think a lot of activities can resume. Hmm. There, it's, it's clear that this is a virus and it's transmitted in a certain way by the respiratory route. And if people are very cautious, they can protect themselves and others. So with that in mind, I think a lot of activities can and should reopen. But it's there's a fear that people will become complacent or uh, get sloppy. And that's something to really guard against. Yeah. And certainly when you see pictures, as things reopen, (laughs) you do see people getting sloppy. I was reading a story on the Bloomberg about, I think, one of our reporters who took a flight and, you know, yep, there were certainly social distancing and things get in place. But then when there was all of a sudden a flight change, like all of a sudden everybody's crammed next to each other and it's very easy to go back to the ways. I do want to, Dr. Letterman, just you guys are working on a vaccine. So tell us where you are, how, what's the timeline you're working on, and, and what kind of a vaccine it, it could ultimately be. Oh, thank you. Our, our vaccine is a live replicating vaccine, and that's a particular kind of vaccine that stimulates T-cell immunity. Mm-hmm. Ours is based on the oldest vaccine, It's uh, the same vaccine that eradicated smallpox from the world. And the the core that we're working on is about 220 years old. And we're using that as a vector to carry a piece of the the COVID-19 pathogen in it. And we are uh, are expecting to be in animal studies in the second half of this year. And... uh, that will determine how quickly we can get into humans. But we're hoping it can be in 2021. Well, uh, here's hoping. I, I mean, we're all yeah. looking forward to that yeah. in, in many ways. And as you have uh, very well uh, set out, Dr. Letterman, it is the it is the path back uh, toward something that looks much more normal. Dr. Seth Letterman is the CEO of Tonics Pharmaceuticals, joining us on the phone from Massachusetts. They are, of course, a clinical stage biopharma company, and they're working on a, a vaccine. And I liked what he was able to explain to us in terms of the types of vaccines that are out there. And there is the most concerted effort, I think, we've certainly seen in our lifetimes to eradicate anything. Right. Uh, Carol, it's fair to say. I hope we stay in touch because I thought the science of explaining the different, because we know that there's a lot of different vaccines being worked on. Um, and I know they just joined a uh, had signed a deal to support the manufacturing of their vaccine candidate. Um, but I'd love to touch base as this progresses, because certainly um, I really do feel like we got a lot of the science holes filled in on what we need to know as, um, you know, individuals who are trying to get back out into our society. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. I am really excited to talk about this next story and with this uh, reporter, in part because, as you know, Carol... Love yes. talking to bureau chiefs. Bureau I chiefs know. are the best. You're Just saying. Doing your chiefing. Um, do the chiefing. Uh, Natalie Obako Pearson is our Vancouver bureau chief for Bloomberg. She joins us on the phone from that gorgeous city. And her story I'm so excited about. Uh, Shopify, because, I mean, this is a juggernaut 
in Canada, mm-hmm. and I really want to understand how it's gotten there and what may be next. Natalie, really nice to have you with us. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. So tell us about Shopify. Remind us what this is and how it has become so important so fast. It's this really odd Canadian story, this very big company that a lot of people have never heard of. Um, it's remained mostly invisible to consumers, but it's, it's become the sort of platform of choice for any business that wants to get online quickly and cheaply. And obviously, since the beginning of the year with the pandemic, pandemic there's been a lot of businesses that suddenly want to get online very quickly and very cheaply. So essentially what it is, is you know, starting with a monthly fee of about $29, you can set up a virtual shop and everything that's needed to run it. So you know, manage things like payments, inventory levels, shipping. Um, and we've seen, you know, mega brands from like Heinz, the ketchup maker, to Heineken, the beer maker, use their, you know, have built their online presence on Shopify, down to like a small florist in Dublin. Um, and one thing that's key to note about Shopify is it, it's essentially for those businesses that don't want to be selling on Amazon. So if you want to go online and keep control of your online shop and your e-commerce presence, you're going to go to something like Shopify and set up your, set it up on that platform. And so today in the U.S., you know, one of the world's biggest e-commerce markets, if you're buying anything online that's not on Amazon, it's most likely done on a website that's been powered by Shopify. And they've been powered by the lockdown and the virus, right, as a lot of people quickly pivoted to digital. That's right. So since the start of the pandemic, uh, I think it was their chief technical officer who was saying something like they were seeing Black Friday levels of traffic every day, all these businesses wanting to suddenly set up an e-commerce shop. And, you know, one example actually was Heinz, this 150-year-old food brand that had resisted selling online for a very long time. But in the UK, as British consumers were suddenly struggling to find pantry staples, they they did this about face. It was this very speedy e-commerce pivot. They, they, within a week, they had a, a virtual shop online selling pasta hoops and tomato soup and so on. And so that has been, you know, replicated in many geographies. And I think, you know, it was um, they saw like a 62 percent surge in store creations over a six week period. I mean, it's unbelievable, too, the juggernaut it's become on the public markets, you know, vying with Royal Bank of Canada as the biggest publicly traded company. I mean, it's bigger than Uber. Right. I mean, which which I feel is like the thing that like that's the thing that you just have to say to anybody in 2019 or 2020. And that gets their attention. It's crazy. And, you know, speaking for Canadians, it's crazy for Canadians. Right. (laughs) It's an $89 billion market cap company. Yeah. Yeah. It's a Bethlehem off. I mean, you know, it, it, it helped flog $61 billion worth of goods in 2019. It's, you know, its market value exceeds that of General Electric, and yet so few people outside of Canada have ever even heard of it. Right. So, go ahead. Well, I was thinking that, so, all right, so we look at Amazon. We all know Amazon, right? We use it constantly. You know, does Amazon have to be worried? I mean, what's the, what's the difference, the biggest difference between these two? Yeah, and that's a great question because I think, uh, you know, a lot of people who are aware of Shopify tend to compare it with Amazon. One one key difference is that if you're a merchant and you want to sell your stuff online, 
Amazon might be an easy choice, but you kind of lose control. Once you put your wares up on Amazon, you're sort of relying on Amazon to get the web traffic to your virtual store, and then Amazon sort of takes over the fulfillment of those orders. And what we actually saw during the pandemic was that as as Amazon became overwhelmed, uh, it was prioritizing essential goods. So those merchants who were selling non-essential goods were right. suddenly finding that they were getting orders, but they couldn't fulfill them. And so that actually helped direct uh, some traffic over to Shopify, where you are in control of your online uh, shop. And the other thing to note is that you know Shopify is is much more than just selling a few things online like it's evolved and so essentially now it's sort of a one-stop shop for a business so during the pandemic it helped merchants set up curbside pickup it helped them find ways to set up local delivery it's also expanding social media so it set up these partnerships with facebook and pinterest because one of the biggest problems for businesses is finding new customers especially if these people aren't walking by your store every day you know how do you find out how do you find new customers so then it's trying to expand social media is just another way to do online shopping and in the past what we've seen is businesses have to kind of cobble together different applications to manage these different channels well shopify really simplifies that for you it's saying you come to us we will help you set that all up and you can see the entirety of your business from this one platform and it's still right. and it's still your site right or is it on shopify it's it shopify is sort of the provides the plumbing but if you are a consumer and you go to that site you will never see shopify yeah, okay, anywhere that's what I thought. unless you go into the code it looks like you know it looks like victoria beckham's clothing line or it yeah. looks like heinz online store cool so natalie before we let you go gotta ask um obviously all of our behavior has changed on the consumer side and behavior has clearly changed on the merchant side. How much does Shopify need for some version of this to continue, for this behavior change to continue in order to be as successful as it has been? Yeah, and that's a great question. I think that's where the skeptics have come in because when you look at some of these multiples, they're sort of reminiscent of the of the internet boom uh, at its frothiest period. You know, its share price has just totally gone stratospheric. Um, and so what, what the one big question is this rush of merchants that came online, is that is that necessarily new demand that's going to sustain? Or is it businesses that might have eventually come online anyway? So are they sort of, has Shopify borrowed from future demand, so to speak? The other big question is how many of the small merchants that have rushed onto Shopify to set up online shops are going to survive? Because right. we saw after the global financial crisis, thousands of them mm. never recovered, and consumer spending may yet collapse. Yeah. So, you know, I think one analyst put it, you know, the Shopify gained a lot of market share with the pandemic, but its biggest risk may actually be meeting investors' expectations. Like, it's a huge amount of pressure to have that enormous share price surge. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's a great story, a must-read. It's on the Bloomberg and on Bloomberg.com today. It'll be in the upcoming edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Natalie Obico-Pearson, Vancouver Bureau Chief for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from Vancouver. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Well, it's time now to dig into the Small Business Survival Guide. It's an effort that our colleagues at Bloomberg Business Week have been undertaking. It's very useful to understand kind of what small businesses are doing throughout all of this. Leading the charge is Demetra Kessanidis, editor for Bloomberg. She joins us on the phone from New Jersey, along with Aisada Marsh. She is the owner of Studio Phenomenon Hair Salon 
on the phone as well. So, Demetra, remind us what you're trying to do here. And, you know, it's interesting. This obviously started, you know, primarily to look at COVID-19 and the aftermath there. But obviously the, the world got a lot more complicated and a lot more troubling in the past couple of weeks. So I wonder how you guys thought about that pivot. Sure. Um, hi, Jason. Yeah, we well, of course, we were looking at small businesses through solely the lens of the of the virus. But even, you know, I mean, the world is much more complicated today. Even if we solely look at the virus sort of kind of next stages, it's complicated because we're all in reopening phase. Right. Uh, New York City, the big news of the last two days has been phase one reopening. We'll eventually move on to phase two and phase three combined with social unrest combined with what is happening in the world, how do you keep going? Do you have the money to keep going? Are your customers going to come back? How can you make your customers feel comfortable? So we, um, Nick Leiber, my colleague, um, who is a freelance contributor, and I have been talking to business owners, and he has been talking to Ayasada Marsh, as we mentioned, about her business in Brooklyn. And it's a lot more complicated than many of us realize when it comes to something like a hair salon. Well, and let's bring in Ayesada Marsh, who joins us on the phone in Long Island. As Jason mentioned, she's owner of Studio Phenomenon Hair Salon. So Ayesada, talk to us about some of the challenges that you're facing. And it's really, you know, twofold minimally, you know, between the virus and then, of course, the civil protests. And, you know, you are a black business owner. So tell us about some of the challenges that you are seeing firsthand. Okay, well, I'm located in the heart of Brooklyn. I serve a number of clients per week and have a number of individuals in my business space at any given time. People are scared. Political, social messaging from respective leaders that's conflicting. We don't know what to do. Uh, they need to have some type of economic state ground established, and things are confusing and hard to access. Like for me, um, I have to restructure my entire space. I have to uh, lessen the people who work for me and um, – actually distant from uh they say six feet i say 10 feet people don't realize when you come inside of a salon or a space you touch everything from the doorknob to the chair to the bathroom door to you know it's very confusing it's confusing for me as a business owner confusing as a client a customer and uh, my demographics reach from age 17 to 79 so i have to be very wary of my older clientele because i don't want them to get sick because they're right at the at the war zone of the virus affecting them. So it's very difficult. You know, I'm at wit's end on what exactly is real or not. I myself went and took a COVID-19 test. It came back negative. And um, some people say it's a negative positive result. It'll come back negative, COVID-19, but then they'll swab their nose and it'll come back positive. Hmm. So this whole thing is absolutely confusing. I don't yeah. know. I mean, at each client that comes in, I have to mask up myself. I have to give them a mask. It's just this whole everyday you know, socialization with people, it's just, it's, it's, it, it feels like literally I have to retrain myself. It's like learning how to read or do a, a first or second grade math. You have to retrain everything that you thought was normal um, to make it the norm. Right. So I started just shifting gears slightly. I mean, so you're in the process of doing all of this, and then, you know, here comes the last two weeks, which have totally turned the world upside down. And I wonder how you view that, you know, as a as a resident, uh, as a business owner, but also as a human being and, and candidly as a mother. Right. Well, it's hard. As a business owner, I like I shut my place down in March because I was it was so many 
mixed messages that were going on. You, I, I'm a news watcher, CNN, MSNBC. I watch the news just to know current events and things that are happening in the world today. So it went from, from the higher ups in the president, this virus is nothing, to, oh, it's only 15, to, oh, it's going to be gone on such and such a day. I had to really sit down and, like, re- realize and tell myself, you know, when they said there was possibility of shutting down a salon, I had to go into thinking mode. As, right. as other young business owners do, it's the hustle mode. Because when you're a young entrepreneur, everything is about hustle, hustle, hustle. So I've been in the business for over 20 years. So me, I had to rethink my situation, where I'm going to go, what I'm going to do, how am I going to service my customers. I went from actually doing hair to making wigs right. and trying to get my clients to buy the piece, wig pieces just until this entire pandemic is over. So, it, you know, you have to well, rethink your brain. Right. I saw that we unfortunately have about 40 seconds left, but you do have two black sons. And I, we just want to get your yes. perspective of the protest. And we apologize. We really do only have about 40 yes. seconds here. Yes. Okay. So as far as the protest going along, I'm a very avid, I'm sorry, I'm a very avid believer with protests and I stand by them 100%. The only thing that I don't like is dismantle of your own community. You mm. can't come and protest and destroy your community, destroy your stores, destroy the places that you eat, work, and buy your food at. It, it's affecting the older generation. These people need uh, uh, prescription medications from the local pharmacy. They need to know where they can go buy their groceries in the morning. If you destroy things in your own community, there's nowhere else to go. My two black sons, yes, they have protested. One protested in New York, one protested in Miami. It's right. just a, a different of, well, of demographic. Yeah. Well, we would listen. We're so glad we got time with you, and we do wish you well. And maybe we can check in with you again as things hopefully start to go back to normal. Ayasada Marsh, owner of Studio Phenomenon Hair Salon, on the phone in Long Island, along with our own Bloomberg News editor, Dimitra Kessanidis. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it's time for the drive to the close. Joining us once again, David Dietz, President and Chief Investment Strategist at Point View Wealth Management. Joining us on the phone from lovely Summit, New Jersey. David, how are you? How are you coping with this market that uh, really can't give us a straight answer, it feels like? (laughs) Well, certainly, um, people are nervous at this point. We've seen a tremendous uh, jump of close to 50% off the apparent bottom, March 23rd. But, of course, the headlines are still horrendous. We've just been told by the NBER that uh, we are in a recession that perhaps started in February. Um, the states are starting to open up quite slowly, but hot spots are increasing. Certainly, um, double-digit percentages of people are out of work, so people are trying to balance this tremendous rebound by the stock market with some of the, the most horrendous economic headlines we've heard in a generation. But so what do you choose to focus on, David? You know, are you really, you know, the equity market tends to look forward. And I do wonder, um, do you think that's right? And do you think the trade justifies what we might be getting? Or is it, you know, too uncertain? We certainly talked to our Bloomberg economics team. And, you know, the expectations are not necessarily that high for what we might ultimately get. But there's also a, a wide gap in terms of, you know, what might happen next. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I think the most uh, important thing for people to realize is is a medical crisis. Um, And that makes it particularly difficult for economists and portfolio managers to get their arms around because that's the province of uh, research scientists and so forth. But by all accounts, the silver bullet, which is the vaccine, is getting closer and closer. There's apparently about 100 firms worldwide working on it. It's becoming like the space race. The Chinese we talked to what we actually talked to one earlier today. You're right, and and they're you know we were trying to get to the science behind it because it's it they're not all the same. Yeah, so there's there's national pride, there's big bucks. You've got uh, three initiatives by Merck, Moderna's offering a partnership between AstraZeneca and Oxford University, which just received a billion in U.S. funding. So I think that's right around the corner. That's the silver bullet. But, of course, the therapeutic, if we can take death off the table, Gilead's working on a great offering there. And each day we're finding testing is becoming more plentiful, more available, cheaper. Um, So that's one area. The other area is we're seeing just a sea change in consumer attitudes. Initially, of course, people were scared to death, as they should have been, from the, the COVID risk. They stayed in their home. Now we're seeing just as much focus on people's economic health and their mental health as opposed to the COVID risk. And they want to get out. They want to get back to work. They want to recreate the states. All 50 of them are now letting them to do that. And we've seen great uh, metrics suggesting that people are clamoring to Vegas. Right. Uh, even air traffic yeah. is starting to get better. So th- those, those are some fundamentals that are moving well, in the right direction. So what are you buying? So what are we buying? So, I mean, you know, we basically like to, to you know, is, is if you are very nervous about the outlook, you stick with that stay-at-home and the secular tech growers. But on the other hand, if you're more constructive and see uh, the benefits of historic policymaker stimulus, both from the Federal Reserve and from um, Congress, then I think you look for some of the the blue-chip cyclicals. The one we like best, quite frankly, is Boeing. And why? First of all, you've got that valuation advantage. It was over 400. Right now, it's just over 200. So, you know, the question is not whether any airline will make it, is whether people over the next five to 10 years will want to take to the skies again. And we think the answer is yes. You basically got a duopoly. You've got Airbus over in Europe. You've got Boeing. Because of the compliance issues, because of the capital required, no one else is going to compete with them. And we just saw a crash over in Pakistan, unfortunately, with an Airbus plane. So no one wants to just rely on them. And so we think that Boeing ultimately has um, the upper hand and will benefit. Now, it's a cyclical business, but they have a backlog of close to 5,000 planes. You know, David Dietz, one of the things I love about you is like you you love these down and outs uh, every now and again. And I remember for uh, almost a, a year or so, we were talking uh, Wells Fargo. You were uh, you, you were behind them uh, all the way. Uh, I do want to talk to you about Coca Cola. Uh, you know, that's one that I grew up with down in Atlanta, and I wonder uh, how you feel about it now. So, you know, it's the chicken way to play a rebound. Here's why. Because it is a consumer staple. So no matter how bad things get, people will turn to their inexpensive luxury, which is a nice Coke. Unfortunately, they make a little bit more money when you buy it at a bar or a restaurant than when you consume it at home. And that's taken their stock down from 60 into the upper 40s, which, by the way, is only six points above where it was 22 years ago. Um, So we think 
did. And remember, Coke is three times the size of its nearest competitor <coughs> in terms of non-alcoholic beverages. Most of its business is overseas. So it's got a distribution system, a high margin one, because it basically they just give the provide the concentrate and let others do the bottling and, the, and, and getting it to your door business. And, and, and so you have a wide, wide moat. You've got a 3.2% dividend. So if things get better, we see it drifting up from that 49 to 60. That's a nice 20% gain plus your dividend. But if things continue to stay tough because of its size, because of that dividend, because of its basically non-cyclicality, we think the downside risk is low. So I think it's a chicken way to take advantage of a general reopening of the economy. And again, 3.2% dividend versus less than 1% of the 10-year Treasury. Where are you going to be after a couple years? Hey, one last name, PNC Financial is another name that you like, and that's got a 3.6% dividend yield. Stock's down about 21% this year. Why PNC specifically? uh, They're based, obviously, out in Pittsburgh. Because of the big news. They sold their stake in BlackRock. So one-third, approximately, of their market value is now in cash. That means that dividend at 3.7% is safe. That gives them the option to buy back stock. It's now about 125. It was 160 at the start of the year. So this could be an opportune time to do that. Or they're in the catbird seat to make an acquisition. As we all know, the financial stocks are um, under pressure. So they could go to the Sun Belt. They could continue in the Midwest. Or they could get some sort of a fintech play. They've got a lot of options. You don't have to worry about financial stress with PNC because of that successful and timely sale of BlackRock. Well, and the company's CEO was making some remarks at a Morgan Stanley conference actually today and said they're going to be patient to deploy capital from that sale of BlackRock. Uh, and they said they consider stock buybacks, quote, at the margins, and that will ideally expand geography, focus on CNI and real estate. So you're right. Yeah. They've got some breathing room. They've got a lot of breathing room. And right expand now. geography sounds a lot like they're going to buy another bank. <laughs> to me. I mean, that's what I would say. It's yeah, like, yeah. hmm, well, maybe if we want to be in the South, it's like we're not going to open a bunch of PNC branches and there are some banks for sale yeah, exactly. uh, down there. Uh, good stuff. David yeah. Eats, thank you so much. Always good to catch up no with you from names. Summit, President, Chief Investment Strategist for Point View Wealth Management. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.